0: You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on worship. Now looking at positions, dispositions, and seven occasions for worship. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. And here's today's teaching. This is the fourth lesson in our series on worship position, disposition, and seven occasions of worship. What positions was one permitted to be in when he approached God? And I refer particularly to prayer. In the Old Testament, we see people kneeling, sitting, lying down and standing, and quite often raising hands. In the New Testament, there aren't many references to raising of hands, but we do see Jesus lying in the garden. We see people kneeling on a beach. you pray with Paul. And Jesus says, if you stand praying and you realize you have something against your brother, or is it your brother has something against you or both? So there's no one position. Much more important biblically is disposition. The disposition is the inside, whereas the position can be quite external. The disposition is one that is expressive, humble, and holy. Let's begin with expressive. In another lesson, I compare Luke 7 and Luke 17, where we have one who is extremely expressive. First, um, a sinful woman crying at Jesus' feet. Then, a Samaritan, one of ten healed of leprosy. The other nine were not Samaritans, nine other persons. And Yet, in Luke 7, the Pharisee looks down on Jesus because he accepts this profuse uh, expression of of service and affection and love from this woman. Of course, Jesus replies, he who uh, has for, for, been forgiven much, you know, loves much. The one who loves little has been forgiven little. So it's not a bad thing to be expressive. In Luke 17, only one of the ten comes back to say thanks. And I also mention in this particular sermon that... Uh, Michal looked out the window at her husband David. She felt scandalized because he was too expressive. And in the worship setting, we always have people at either end of this spectrum. One who is maybe as hard as singing, but he doesn't raise his hands. He's not comfortable with that. Maybe even uh, clapping or swinging or swaying make, is just, it's just not his cup of tea. But he may feel things deeply. Or maybe he doesn't feel, but he's trying to feel. At the other extreme, we have those who have no problem raising hands in prayer, saying hallelujah, amen, preach it, brother, and so forth. The Bible neither commends or condemns uh, either position. The important thing is not to look down on those who are at the other end of the spectrum from us. For us who are less expressive, not to look at those who are more expressive as being somehow insincere or childish. And for those who are more expressive, more noisy, so to speak, not to look down on those who are more quiet. Expressiveness, the expression of the heart comes out in the words, Jesus said. Humility. In the uh, Psalms series, uh, 10 lessons that I recorded and also multiple lessons by my friend, Roland Monhey of the Philippines, there's a tremendous emphasis on humility. When Solomon dedicates the temple, First Kings 8, humility is just coming out uh, completely. When Solomon is asked uh, five chapters earlier, In a dream, in a vision, by God, what can I do for you? His response is quite amazing. He says, I'm only a little child, and I do not know how to govern this great people of yours. So he asks for wisdom. So these are vital considerations in the disposition of the heart. And what about holiness? How do we live on Monday? How did we live on Sunday? How did we act in worship? I was in church today because this is a Sunday. I preached. Singing was good. What's the audience going to be like tomorrow? People say, great message. I think, well, we'll see if it's a great message or not, based on how lives change. The better test is not the electricity level in the fellowship post-sermon. The better test is what's changed in people's lives a month or two months down the road. But we don't have to look that far down the road. We can look a day down the road. Because if for some reason it's Monday and you've not been living in God's presence, well, were you really worshiping on Sunday? If I'm not thinking of Jesus Christ first on Monday, am I really putting him first on, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day? For there to be true worship, some things in my life are going to have to change. Some things in my life are going to have to be destroyed and eliminated. The Hebrew writer reminds us that God is a consuming fire as if we didn't know that from the Old Testament. There's so many passages. God is love, but he is also a consuming fire. I mentioned in an earlier lesson how it bothers me so many people claim these uh, visits to heaven, near-death experiences, partly because it seems often mushy. Anyone they know or might feel sentimental towards has made it. And because there's no judge on a throne, it's just a, a warm presence, a shepherd, Jesus, who embraces them. And it seems like everything's okay. Forgetting that in the Bible, when people have an encounter with the divine, they're often out of breath. They can hardly stand. They fall down. They're pale. They're ill for several days. And why is that? Because God is holy. And we could be destroyed in his presence for sin. Habakkuk one thirteen. So there are two ends here. God is love, but God is also a consuming fire. And I would put more credence in these heavenly visits if people talked more about judgment and had more of a sense of holiness. So it is, and worship should be neither too friendly, glib, flippant, cavalier, God's my cosmic buddy, nor should it be too somber or characterized by fear and trembling. I know, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. At the same time, we're to be joyful always, Philippians 4.4. 4. So we need to grasp both ends at the same time. And while we speak of holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, one day it will be too late to go down on our knees. We read about those in the apocalypse who refuse to worship, Revelation 16.9. They just won't be humble. They're plagued. They're struck by God, but his message isn't really striking them. They're not humble. And someone could counter, as some liberal theologians do, some people I've met. Eventually, everyone will make it because Paul said every knee will bow and salvation will come to all men just as death came to all men. Ah, But in Romans 5, Paul's not saying that everyone will be saved. Everyone who sins will become a sinner and everyone who is willing to follow Christ has a potential to be saved. They've misunderstood Romans 5, but they also have misread Paul in Philippians 2. Because in verses 9 to 11, Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And in chapter 45, the prophet says that the enemies of God will fall before him, not because they've been converted, but because it's too late. They have no choice. The evidence is overwhelming. And so every knee will bow. So let's not comfort ourselves by the thought that, well, at the judgment day or after death, people humble out. God will give them a second chance. Yes, God is love. And I certainly hope we meet with God's grace. But he is also a consuming fire. These are some important considerations. We've looked at seven, four related to position, kneeling, sitting, lying, standing. And I could throw in as a bonus the raising of hands, interestingly, in early Christian art, sometimes it's what survived in the catacombs. Early art, I mean, the first few centuries, one of the most common figures is the praying person, standing with arms extended as a child asking for something from its parent or asking to be picked up. Doesn't mean that we have to pray that way. But Paul tells men, particularly, to raise holy hands, not angry hands. I think he's, he's certainly alluding there to um, Isaiah. Uh, I think it's 58. And we looked at, at those four positions, and then we talked about three dispositions of the heart. And what are those dispositions? Expressiveness. You know, we have to be willing to, to open our heart and to allow, uh, you know, to, to, To allow the feeling out, to to admit who God is, to express it, to verbalize it. That's highly significant. Uh, The next disposition is humility. Gotta have holiness. And the last is holiness. Again, if we weren't living in God's presence on Monday, were we really worshiping on Sunday? And one day, it will actually be too late. Well, Those are seven considerations. Now let's talk about seven considerations of occasion. Occasion. Biblically, when do we worship? When do we pray? And I'm going to confine myself only to the Old Testament right now. When do we pray? Well, Exodus 4, and again, all this is in the notes with the podcast. People prayed. People worshipped. People felt that that God was real. There was a real connection when they realized that God cared. Remember Moses has has just come from Sinai. He performs signs. He he visits the elders of the people of Israel. This is the the last verse of Exodus 4. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. We worship when we feel God cares. But if we're in a knot and we've convinced ourselves that he doesn't care or he's distant, then it's very hard to worship. I mean, what are we offering? Knowing God cares is huge. Also in Exodus, I have several passages that we'll we'll mention here. It's chapter 15. I think we all know chapter 14. That is the uh, deliverance through the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. They are rescued from the Egyptians. They're safe. It's a new beginning. They pass through the water. In a sense, they're baptized into Moses, to use the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. But this is followed by what is called the Song of Moses. And chapter 15 puts to music and and verse what happens in the the historical account of chapter 14. And uh, it's beautiful. And then after Moses' song, the Song of Moses, then Miriam has her own version but I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. And this is a celebration, not just that of God's care, but of redemption. When we really appreciate our salvation. Now, if we're nearsighted and blind and have forgotten, 2 Peter 1, then we may not be doing that. But that is the second occasion of worship. A third is when we know God's name. Uh, in my uh, materials on Exodus, like the uh the CD series Night of Redemption, a study of Exodus, one of the most exciting parts for me is explaining what God's name is. When I was in Mozambique last year, it was an issue. and, uh, And that's actually what the Sunday message was all about. What does it mean to know God's name? Is it a way we pronounce something? Is it a word? Is it Jehovah? The answer to that is no. Is it Yahweh? Yeah, that's probably better. But it's still wrong because God's name is not what we call him. Russians call Russians say God, uh, they, they say Bug, right? God, or the Italians may say idio, or you may have Deus in Portuguese, or Dios. What is God? Dieu. It's not a question of pronunciation. It is his nature, authority, and presence. In Exodus 34, Moses wants uh, to, to know who God is. He's asked to, to see God, to know God. And God says, I will declare to you my name. And, and, and he does that. God shares his name with Moses. You've got to look at this, Exodus 34, but look in the context, read all around it. The Lord passed before him. I'll start in verse five. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Okay. What does it mean he proclaimed the name of the Lord? Continue. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity, the fathers and the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is God's name. His name, that's his nature. His name is who he is. It's not what you call him. Like you may be listening to this and your name is Stephanie or Roger or Mehmet. No, his name is who he is. In the name of means by virtue of who he is, by his authority. We know God's name when we understand who God is. To do that, we have to have our eyes open reading scripture and reading life just looking at what God does. A third occasion of worship is when we realize that we're in the presence of God. And sometimes this happens at surprising times. And I direct us to Joshua 5. It's shortly before the, I was going to say the Battle of Jericho. It's not really much of a battle, um, you know, the way God works there. But the commander of the Lord's army is all ready to take his people in. He's revved. His engines are revved. This is Joshua. But he meets a different commander. I read from Joshua 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn. Standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand? Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Which side are you on? And he said, no. Or you could render it neither no but i am the commander of the army of the lord now i have come and joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him what does my lord say to a servant and the commander of the lord's army this is the heavenly host this is the real army replies take off your sandals from your feet or the place where you're standing is holy and joshua did so And there we have a fourth occasion of worship. We realize we're in the very presence of God. Very similar to what we read about Jacob in his vision in Genesis 28, the vision of the latter. Fifth occasion of worship is when we sacrifice. Worship and sacrifice are meant to go together. And if our attitude is, well, I want to worship, but I don't want to have I don't want it to cost me anything. That's not right. That's not right at all. Uh, we, we read in, um, first Samuel, for example, chapter three, the connection between worship and sacrifice. The boy Samuel was ministering in the presence of Eli. Uh, the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And you read this, this passage. Oh, you can read many other passages, but we see that sacrifice and worship are to go together. The reason this boy, Samuel, will replace Eli and Eli's wicked sons is the way they they really corrupted uh, worship and sacrifice. What did they do? I mean, they they just went to church, so to speak. For what they could get out of it, there's no true sense of sacrifice. In fact, you could go back even further. This would be like uh, Cain versus Abel. Abel made a precious sacrifice. Cain seems to have given more what was convenient. Worship and sacrifice, huge theme. Sixth, worship on the occasion of severe loss. In fact, despite severe loss, Job has lost everything, Job one twenty, And his attitude is really amazing. In this story, this is before the, the long poem begins. This is in the um Uh, The the, the prose part, you know, the first two chapters and and, and much of the the final chapter of Job are prose, but the rest of it is is poetry. This is the beginning as he's losing everything. And, and you know, it's just one thing after another, almost melodramatic how it happens. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from a mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is worship despite severe loss. And the last passage which we read before, so I'm just going to refer you to Nehemiah 8:6 and Nehemiah 9:3. And what did we see there? Well, when people really feel like they're learning God's word, they are moved. They, we, because it includes me, surely, um, uh, have a sense of joy. Uh, we are just just happy. But uh, you can look at that in Nehemiah 8, uh, 6, uh, 8, 12, 8, 8, 9, 3. Amazing the, the, the willingness that they had to spend extended lengths of time getting to know God's Word. Seven occasions of worship when we know God cares, when we appreciate redemption, when we know God's true name, when we realize we're in the presence of God, when we sacrifice, even when we suffer great loss. And as we learn the word of God, those are seven occasions of worship. In the next lesson, we'll be looking at seven times or places where despite our, our need to worship, the heart goes wrong. Seven places, the heart goes wrong. We hope you enjoy Douglas' teaching on worship. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas' website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry.